Radio. No matter who you are, you're likely to come in contact with police every once in a while. You might be pulled over for speeding or simply stop to talk as you go about your day. If you're someone who lives on the street, those encounters could come dozens or even hundreds of times. But what if you knew that during each of those encounters, the police were gathering some information about you, who you're with, what you're wearing, where you're going? What if you weren't guilty of a crime and that information was held forever? There's no national standard to govern how long this stuff is held or how it's used. On this episode of the podcast, we're talking with Glenn Smith and Andrew Knapp of The Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina. They looked into police field interview practices, including how the data from those interviews is being stockpiled in the digital age. Then they spent a year and a half fighting for access to immense databases of personal information collected by police departments around the country. It wasn't easy. In some cities, they were successful, uncovering millions of entries on innocent people across the U.S. In others, they were less fortunate. IRE's Riley Began talked to Andrew and Glenn about their investigation, including the legal battles they're still fighting for access to public records. I'm Daniela Vidal, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. In June of 2014, a Charleston police officer was working an off-duty shift. He was patrolling a low-income apartment complex that's known for crime and drugs. It was a hot night, 85 degrees. The officer spotted 19-year-old Denzel Cornell wearing a hoodie in the sweltering heat, and he got suspicious. He pulled his cruiser to the side of the road and stopped Denzel. That evening would be Denzel's last. The stop ended in his death, which authorities deemed to be a suicide in the presence of an officer. The incident raised a lot of questions in the community, particularly about why the officer stopped Denzel in the first place. Was the Charleston Police Department using racial profiling when they stopped people on patrol? The issue was widely covered by local reporters, one of which was the Post and Courier's Andrew Knapp. If that stop had turned out um, differently, if it had ended peacefully and there was nothing remarkable about it, that young man probably would have gone, along, gone on his way. Um, the officer would have gone on his, his normal patrol after that, and that would be that. But we were wondering if there is some sort of paper trail that documents that encounter and what is done with that information um, later on. Andrew and others at the Post and Courier wrote some stories in the aftermath of Denzel's death that referenced Charleston PD's stop-and-frisk policy. Then they got a call from the mayor. And the mayor uh, very indignantly contacted us and said, we don't do stop-and-frisk here in Charleston, even though officers had, had told us that they do. That's Glenn Smith, the watchdog and public service editor at the Post and Courier. So he said, look, we do something that's called a, a field contact interview, and uh, it's, it's much different from stop and frisk. You should really look into this and, and show the difference. Field contact interviews are a decades-old police tool that officers use to note important information about their encounters with and observations of citizens, even if those encounters don't lead to arrests. They function as a way for police to link suspicious behavior to crimes. So if, for instance, a gas station gets robbed, an officer can check the field contact logs and see if anything or anyone suspicious was observed in that area. If they get a match, now they have a lead on someone they can question. In the past, those notes were written up on paper. An officer fills one out, it gets filed in a drawer somewhere in the station. And so you can imagine how this might work. Dozens of officers filling out dozens of forms, all of them getting cataloged into a paper filing system. 
After a couple years, the drawers get full. If the people stopped weren't later implicated in a crime, the paper documents get tossed and the process continues. But now, Glenn says, they're being stored electronically and the digital filing cabinets never get full. Uh, as time went on, in recent years, they've become um, electronic forms that they fill out on the street. and it, it has everything from GPS coordinates to space. You put in someone's marital history, job history, identifiers, suspicions, social security numbers, all sorts of stuff. And that gets fed from a laptop into a main uh, database down at the department, and you keep adding and adding and adding and adding stops, suddenly you've collected a ton of information where you could track someone's movements and and things of that nature. So they took the mayor up on his suggestion and filed a FOIA request with the Charleston Police Department for data gathered from field contact interviews. We were met with their response that it would be too time-consuming and uh, too much of a financial burden on them to get all this data for us that we were requesting. Um, And so they wanted to charge us $200,000. $200,000. It's the price tag of a college education, a three-bedroom house, a Lamborghini, or a police data set full of personal information. Even though the field contact cards are public documents under South Carolina's open records law, the police said the sensitive information contained in the database would have to be redacted, which would take hundreds of hours. We said, well, these are folks that basically haven't been charged with any crimes, correct? And they said, yeah, in the most most cases. And we said, well, how many folks are in this system? And they said, well, there's about 100,000 entries since 2009. It was a huge database, and it was shrouded in secrecy. Andrew and Glenn got curious. They began requesting field interview databases from other police departments throughout South Carolina. And the responses began to sound a bit like a broken record. Again, we called around departments around the state, and they said, yeah, we do this too. No, you can't look at these things uh, unless you pay, you know, $70,000, $100,000, It's sort of ironic to have, you know, a police department say you need to look at this information, but at the same time, they don't want to give you all that information. And so that obviously raises some red flags with uh, us as journalists um, that, you know, this might be something that we have to look into. They went back and forth with the Charleston police, who offered to give them some data, including addresses, dates, race, and gender. But they still wouldn't let them see the narrative fields, which explained why they were making the stops. Departments we contacted around the state some would give us names, but no explanations of the stops. Some would give us um, all sorts of different data, but everyone had their own way of doing it, but nobody would give us everything. It was clear they were onto something. And if the practice was as routine as the police were claiming, they wondered what sort of field contact data other police departments were hoarding. And then we decided to look at that practice uh, across the country. Amidst the national conversation about race and policing, Andrew and Glenn thought their story would be particularly relevant to national audiences. We started looking into some of these Justice Department investigations where they'd look into patterns and practices of different departments. Uh, oftentimes buried in those reports were, were harsh commentaries about their pedestrian stop policies, their field interview policies. And it seemed to always highlight that disproportionately this would affect minority and poor communities. So they sat down and came up with a list of the 50 largest police departments in the country. We kind of 
crafted a FOIA and a list of questions, a survey that we sent out to those 50 agencies, trying to get a sense of, again, how, how many people were using this, how many folks that they have on file, what sort of complaints they had against them over this, uh, how long they kept the, the information, whether they ever destroyed it after a time, if someone wasn't tied to a crime, that sort of thing. As they worked with police departments, it was rarely contentious. Police were surprised Andrew and Glenn had an interest in field interviews now. After all, they'd been using them for decades. They argued that they were a useful tool for generating initial suspects when starting a criminal investigation. The main conflict came down to a difference of opinion. Was the information public or not? Eventually, the police departments in South Carolina's major cities provided limited electronic records. The data was spotty, though. Each department released different types of information. Some included names and reasons for stops, while others released only the locations and dates. That pattern repeated itself across the country. Andrew and Glenn worked as much as they could on the investigation in between other newsroom requirements, including covering the shooting death of Walter Scott and the mass shooting at the Emanuel AME Church. We've been a very busy uh, newsroom over the past year and a half or so, or so. So Glenn and I have been very busy um, helping to, to report those stories while dedicating what time we can to a project of this magnitude. But they kept at it. We're reaching out to these large police departments on, on all parts of the country, and you know, a lot of people had never heard of us and post a career who, why do you want to know this stuff? I don't have time for this. Or, or they just would, they just ignore us completely. So I think some departments, we probably contacted, you know, eight or nine phone calls, maybe a dozen emails, just kept pestering them. After about a year of negotiations, Glenn and Andrew had enough limited information to understand the scope of the issue and to interview often stopped people about their experiences. Fortunately, some departments were able to uh, disclose about the top 25 most frequently stopped individuals in the community. Um, from that, we were able to, to look into who these people were. For other departments, they um, just would not release that information, and so we had to reach out to the community and to see uh, who was being stopped often by the police and to see if the police were collecting this sort of information um, during those stops. Many of the people who were most frequently stopped were in the databases tons of times. We found this one fellow in Charleston who had been stopped or, or observed over a thousand times. And working with one of our web developers, we were able to just basically plot every place he had been stopped over a period of five years. You could see completely his pattern of movements. Many of the most tracked people lived on the streets, and some of them had around 1,000 field contact entries tied to their names since 2009. Glenn and Andrew wrote that the number of charges filed against these people pales in comparison to how many times they appear in the database. When it came time to put the piece together, Andrew and Glenn had some pretty shocking findings to present. Personal, intimate information was being stockpiled around the country. Some departments, like Miami-Dade County in Florida, had over a million people in their database. We also found that uh, most agencies are hoarding this in information indefinitely. There's no national standard to govern how this stuff is, how long this stuff is held, or how it's used. Uh, we also found that police officers in, in a lot of cities don't fully document why they're making these stops, so you have no idea what reasonable suspicion existed if it did. 
Uh, we also did find that minorities were being disproportionately subjected to these uh, stops and questioned by folks under the umbrella of the field interviews. And we also found that a lot of folks are very concerned about the privacy aspects of this and also the potential infringement on constitutional rights against the unwarranted intrusion by the government. Even if you're stopped for an innocuous reason or no reason at all, being in a law enforcement database can draw suspicion and pose potential problems. There's a stigma attached to being associated with the police. Some folks are unfairly ending up in these databases, uh, particularly in terms of um, associations with gang members. Somebody might be sitting on the street with somebody who'd been identified as a gang member. They end up in this just by guilty by association. In Newark, New Jersey, the Justice Department found that internal affairs investigators had discredited valid complaints against officers because the person making the allegation showed up in the department's database, often under questionable circumstances. And when you have a treasure trove of personal data within a few keystrokes of anyone in the department, it's easy to understand how a few bad cops could misuse that information for their own personal gain. Police databases such as this are being misused around the country uh, to look up, you know, girlfriends, ex-girlfriends, to settle scores with people, to just the officers getting in trouble for, for accessing this data for all sorts of non-sanctioned, unofficial reasons. In many cases, it was alleged that police departments were requiring their officers to meet an interview quota simply to build the databases. That was propelling them into a lot of situations they might not get into, um, creating a lot of confrontations that might not otherwise happen. So that strain the relationship between the police and the community. Andrew came across a really interesting case out in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, where folks said that that the police officials were so intent on creating a database with as many entries as they could, and that led to some crazy encounters like one in which a woman uh, who was working out in a 24-hour gym was approached by an officer when she refused to give up her personal information, ended up in cuffs on the floor till a supervisor came, and uh, that uh, ended up in a lawsuit against the city. We've seen indication that that's going on in many other cities. The surveillance potential of these databases becomes clear when you read the investigation online. The web story features a stunning map connecting the locations of stops. And what emerges are the patterns of people's daily lives. Our interactive editor, Emery Parker, took it far beyond the dot phase and really came up with this really neat way of displaying it with, with the sort of vectors and, and uh, lines that, that could trace movement over time on a, on a three-dimensional map. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty startling display, and it really, I think, drove home the point of just how much information uh, they have on you. But the paper is still missing a lot of important information, which means their negotiations with the police are not over. The officers, when they do these field interviews, are supposed to document their reasons for um, stopping someone. And it would be great to look at that and to see if police departments are are using this correctly, if they're patrolling in in these neighborhoods um, in a way that doesn't unfairly affect certain members of the community. But we can't, can't really do that unless these police departments open up their files which we contend are public. So it was disappointing in that respect not to get that information, because that's really what I wanted to see when I got into this. But there's that broader story of, you know, what are they hiding? Are they hiding anything? And we can only answer that if they they let us see. I, I wish we had those files that they won't let us have. Um, I, I just worry about the information that we haven't been able to get at yet, and we're just gonna keep pushing until we get that information. Thank you.
Andrew and Glenn's first FOIA request to the Charleston PD, the one that was going to cost them $200,000, that was filed in early 2015. They're still fighting the exorbitant fee in court. It all boils down to two strong, differing opinions on the state's open records laws. We disagree. Uh, We both agree that we disagree. And so we have to have someone else hash that out. And it's going to have to be a judge in the courtroom. An open records expert told the Post and Courier that South Carolina law doesn't allow government agencies to charge money to review documents that are clearly public record. Andrew says that this also raises an important question. Is there a way to collect field contact information in a way that can actually help strengthen the relationship between police departments and communities? There are certain fields in this field contact form that shed light on you know, how the police are patrolling their neighborhoods. And if we can somehow get at those fields on that form without having to go through an exhaustive legal process like we are now in a redacting process, then maybe this sort of information can actually help the police in their, you know, building that relationship with the community. We've seen how field contact data can offer an immense um, oversight utility um, and being able to um, gauge, you know, how the how the police departments are patrolling these communities. So if they hope somehow collect this data in a different way that allows the public to look at that, then maybe that would be a good thing for the police. And it's been done before. Two years ago in Boston, police partnered with the ACLU to review their stop-and-frisk policies after getting repeated complaints from citizens. Using field contact data, they found they were stopping poor people and people of color at disproportionate rates, and they used that information to implement policy changes. It allowed them to sort of recalibrate how they were doing things, retarget some resources. I think they, they took people out of the database if they hadn't been charged with a crime in a certain amount of time. The more you're transparent with this stuff, the, the more the community will probably find reasons to trust it and, and, and the methods being used. Glenn says that the investigation had a notable impact on South Carolina's state power brokers. The Charleston police chief said that he'd formed a team of folks to look into how to remove innocent people from this database that they have. Some state lawmakers are talking about um, also taking a look at statewide the, the retention limits for the data. Only one police department we came across in the city of Greenville actually had a, a system for purging the stuff after time if uh, folks had not been implicated in a criminal activity. Local grassroots groups are also planning to take action on the findings. There's some local groups, uh, justice ministry, some social activist folks that uh, are very keen on looking at the data and starting a conversation with some of the police departments around here. But there are still six police departments around the country that haven't given Andrew and Glenn any data or provided any insight into their tactics and methods. Those would be the Nassau County, New York Police Department, the City of Miami Police Department, the Prince George's County Police Department in Maryland, Kansas City, Missouri Police, and the Chicago Police, uh, who I never got a response from anything. Just silence, crickets. And also St. Louis, Missouri. They uh, got back to us and said, we're not going to answer your question. They plan to continue to follow up with those departments and are considering making a public appeal to reporters in those areas to help get the information. Watched isn't the Posting Courier's first major investigation to make waves. Just one example is their investigation into domestic abuse, Till Death Do Us Part, which won a Pulitzer Prize in 2015. 
I asked them what made it possible for their paper to tackle such large-scale investigations. We have uh, top editors and publisher who really believes in the value of uh, doing stories that matter. I think that's why we got into the business, to make positive changes and help people improve their lives and, and make society better, shine lights in dark places. And uh, they've given us the freedom and the resources to do that. Some of the projects that this newspaper has completed in the past few years, that inspires everyone in the newsroom to do better work. And I I think that we have that environment here in the newsroom that everybody wants to contribute to that and to, to make a difference somehow in the work that they do. It's not always easy at a paper this size to take on uh, bigger issues and bigger investigations, but I think if you have communication and enthusiasm across the newsroom and, and folks willing to pitch in to make it happen, you, you can do it. You can do it anywhere as long as the, the mindset and the, uh, the will is there. To other reporters hoping to find this data on their own police departments, Andrew and Glenn have some simple advice. Keep your head up. We would certainly hope if um, other reporters throughout the country encounter some roadblocks, that they they don't just give up. And we, we certainly didn't give up when we encountered several in this case. Even if the data isn't considered public in your state, there are some other ways to learn about your local police department's practices. Certainly you could ask, how many records do you have on file? What sort of things do you document? Provide us with a copy of a sample form to see what the information is being collected. What sort of uh, retention policies do you have? If uh, this doesn't lead to an arrest or a link to some known gang membership or something, uh, why isn't that stuff disposed of after a certain amount of time? We can ask a lot of questions centered around the data itself uh, without, I guess, having the data itself. You know, where are the stops being conducted? That that sort of thing. They should be able to provide you with some sort of, at the very least, dates, um, addresses of stops, and that sort of thing, racial data, gender data. Glenn also says he's happy to help other reporters look into what's going on in their own communities. Uh, They can reach out to us. We'd be more than happy to share our questionnaire, more than happy to share our findings, um, compare notes with you, tell you tips on how to go about that. And we'd love it if you could share that information with us, too. What you happy to promote that and, and tell people what you found. They encourage the public to look into it as well. If you're interested in seeing what your local police department has on you, the Post and Courier's online package includes information on every state's FOIA laws and sample forms that can help you request your own data. We'll have links to all of that, as well as the reporter's contact information in our episode notes. Andrew and Glenn have a final piece of advice, a lesson that Glenn says took him a long time to learn. Sometimes the best stories, the most important stories, are sitting right in front of your face. I'd probably come across field contact cards, you know, dozens and dozens of times as as a frontline cop reporter over the years. Never really thought so much about how they might be potentially abused in the digital age. You know, some things you just accept as a fact of life. You know, we realized that maybe there was something more to that. And we looked into it and I think resulted in in a story that could definitely make a difference someday. Sometimes those stories are right there in your community looking in the face. You just have to pay attention. Open yourself up to them. for listening. Check out our episode notes for links to the investigation, as well as a copy of the survey Andrew and Glenn sent out to police departments across the country. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. 
and head over to ire.org podcast to browse our archives. On our next episode, we'll be talking with Ryan McNeil, Deborah Nelson, and Yasmina Boutaleb of Reuters about their investigation into how the healthcare industry is misreporting deaths caused by drug-resistant infections. It's one of the most fundamental functions of the public health system, to count deaths, to keep track of who's dying, you know, from what cause, where, what numbers. Um, and it's important for identifying and responding to, to the deadly threats. Yeah, we're not doing that. The IRE Radio podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Riley Began reported this episode. Blake Nelson draws our episode artwork, and Sarah Hutchins is our editor. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Daniela Vidal. Podcast. Podcast.